everybody in? Is everybody in? Is everybody in? The ceremony is about to begin. Welcome to episode yeah. four of the Cultural Futures Exchange. This episode is titled The Doors. The Doors, right? Well, we'll be ex examining the debut album of The Doors, self-titled. I'm Jeff. That's Slip. There he is. I'm Slip. Hello? And uh, yep. welcome. 
Now, uh, a real little reminder here about uh, the CFX conceit. So this is the place where we examine different elements of cultural ephemera, be it a movie, music, as we have been doing recently, TV, etc. Dive into the context, the time it came out, what's happened since, and really our take on the future valuation, as it were, of the item in terms of should you go long, will the value go up, in other words, should you go short, will the value decrease over time, culturally, or stay about the same. Now, if this seems like a, like a weird concept, or you're not quite sure what to make of it, just hang in there. It'll make sense over time, I think. Uh, so just lie back, close your eyes, listen to the world that we're exploring, and, and I think it'll all come into some focus. So uh, some of those clips, by the way, uh, that may not be clear, and we'll talk about some of them, but the, the last one was uh, Jimmy Fallon doing his great Jim Morrison impression. And the one before that, that he was like, who's that singing the door song? That was actually Ray Manzarek uh, singing that. And we'll talk a little bit about why he was singing that a little bit later. So at any rate, The Doors' uh, first debut album uh, came out in the summer of love. So setting, was go ahead. Actually, it was, was this? was earlier i think wasn't it oh no i think you're right yeah i think the single came out in 67 i think I thought. no i think uh yeah early 67 though it was really okay. early i so, believe so maybe so. The, the the winter um, of love <laughs> or yeah. or the or the spring of love but potentially so anyway most people right. we could go into a whole lot of history on the the background of that time and what was going on culturally and the the zeitgeist of the times and all that. You probably, listener, know most of that. I don't think we'd be doing you any favors by rehashing things you've seen in documentaries and if you've lived it or uh, if you've heard about it from your parents or whatever it is many, many, many times. But again, uh, crazy civil rights unrest, Vietnam era, generational war, I would say. Uh, all those sorts of things. You had the ascendancy, obviously, prior to this of the Beatles. You you had, you know, Bob Dylan's kind of transition from folk to rock happening. You had all these other things going on. You had a lot of the, you know, unrest in terms of the, uh, you know, protests and all, all the crazy stuff. So, yeah, I think we should also mention, uh, you know, you mentioned Dylan. It's kind of the beginning of poetry in, in rock, right? Where even Dylan has this famous, you know, there's this famous meeting between Dylan and the Beatles that happened even earlier in like the early 60s. And he's like telling the Beatles they should focus more on the lyrics. And you started to get John Lennon writing songs like I'm a loser that had a little more meaning than she loves you. And right. I want to hold your hand. Right. So and, and then after that, you had the, you know, Dylan going electric, as you mentioned, entering rock, creating folk rock, essentially creating lyrics that mattered. And then you had the birds making that even more popular with their mix of folk and rock at the time. And this was all a lot of this, obviously not Bob Dylan, but the birds was happening in Los Angeles. And you had bands like Love, too, that also kind of pushed the envelope of what music could do that very, very much influenced the doors and set the scene for them. So I think Los Angeles in the 60s was such a huge, huge thing um, that, you know, that that climate. And then of course, you had the before that you had you know, what may have influenced Dylan as well was the, were the beat poets. And there was a huge scene in Venice that is not as famous as what happened in the Bay Area with City Lights and, 
and new and what was going on in New York with Allen Ginsberg, right? With Howell and all that. You had a scene in Venice as well. And that's what kind of attracted Jim Morrison and, and two to rooftops that in that area, right? And he was part of that too. Yep. Right, exactly. All exactly. Right. Yep. So let's get into it a little bit here. As you know, our, our uh, sort of model here is we talk about our personal histories with each of these things. And I'll kick it off by talking about how and where I first encountered The Doors. So I remember hearing The Doors in maybe junior high and high school. They weren't really my thing. I, I never really was attracted to them as a band that much. I had heard all the major hits, of course. You couldn't really exist without hearing, you know, your Light My Fires and all that kind of stuff. They weren't really a major kind of component of my life. I had a, a good friend of mine in junior high, Daniel. His, he had an older sister, uh, Melanie, who was kind of a rocker kind of chick. And she had, you know, one of those denim jackets with buttons all over it. Uh, one of the buttons had the doors with their, like, iconic you know, font on that. And I was like, oh, the doors, you know, are they kind of a cool band? She was kind of cool. So I didn't really know much about them, but I they were at least in my uh, consciousness uh, a bit. None of my friends were really that into them. It wasn't really played around uh, me that much for the most part. And in college, I heard a lot more of them because a, a dear friend of both Slip and mine, Mike K., was a big uh, Doors fan, and he was always playing them and talking about them and and teasing me especially because I wasn't the biggest Doors fan in the world, as we'll get into. So um, that was really where I heard about them and heard their music mostly. It wasn't something that I played constantly. Uh, in the mid-'90s, though, and this gets into some of the things we're going to be talking about a little bit later, I, I lived in Paris for a while, and I lived actually in the, the border between the 19th and the 20th arrondissement in uh, Père Lachaise, I think is in the, technically in the 20th, but it was about a 10 minute walk uh, from where I was uh, staying at. And per yeah, which is kind of cool. Wow. Père Lachaise. That's awesome. I would love to visit Paris. Uh, we, we had originally planned to, but, you know, go to Europe right when the pandemic hit in April of 2020, we had to cancel everything. So I was definitely going to make you absolutely that pilgrimage should. myself. And you absolutely should. I mean, Paris is, I think, probably the greatest city in the world. Uh, different topic for a different episode. But uh, Père Lachaise Cemetery is absolutely worth going to visit, independent of the fact that uh, Jim Morrison is buried there. But uh, many, many other famous uh, people are buried there. You know, your Edith Piafs and your Sandra, uh, Sarah Bernhardt. I said Sandra Bernhardt. I think she's still living. Sarah Bernhardt, uh, Maria Callas, Oscar Wilde, Chopin, Balzac, Molière, Gertrude Stein and her wife uh, buried there. A lot of famous artists like Delacroix, famous mathematician, uh, Sophie Germain. If you've never heard of her, she was underappreciated in the early 1800s, brilliant uh, math French mathematician, Modigliani, Proust, Haussmann, who is like kind of the architect of modern Paris and on and on and on. Interesting story real quick about that. So, you know, Jim Morrison obviously died, you know, in Paris. And when he was there about a week or two before his death, he went to Père Lachaise uh, with another, like kind of this hanger on he had met who kind of rescued him from this uh, uh, stupor in this club and kind of just was a friend of theirs for the, you know, friend of him and uh, Pamela Corson. 
for the rest of Jim's days. And about a week or so or two before he died, they went to Père Lachaise and, and Jim yeah. mentioned that he wanted to be buried there. Um, and when after he died, they, you know, they went to the cemetery, Pamela Corson and this guy, I forget his name, I'm sorry. But, um, you know, they they had managed to get uh, to 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 get him buried there. But the first place he was going to be buried was right next to Oscar Wilde. And because of the weird parallels between his life and death and Oscar Wilde's, uh, both Pamela and this guy were really um, freaked out by the idea of him being buried next to Oscar Wilde. So there was a he was buried actually in a different place in the cemetery. But that was kind of an interesting yeah. parallel. O Oscar so. Wilde's, uh, you know, grave area is much bigger, actually, um, than Morrison's, too. And w when I was there, um, going around the uh, cemetery area, uh, there weren't a lot of barriers up. So, for example, um, in the mid-90s, at least, I, I think it vacillated back and forth between um, the, them cleaning up Jim Morrison's grave, for example, and removing the graffiti and all the mess around it, and then letting it kind of just happen. And when I was there, it was a mess. There was this graffiti everywhere. There's like cigarette butts everywhere. There's It, it was not well uh, maintained. I think now they've cordoned it off a bit and made it so you can't actually get to it. Security. They added uh, security and stuff, right? I think they added, yeah, because of all the the hippie pilgrimages. Yeah, just it was it was a mess when I was the there. It, I I think they periodically had went in and cleaned it up, and it would just get graffitied over. I actually, when when I was there, Oscar Wilde's grave, you could access it pretty well. But now I read they have a whole barrier up against it because the thing to do with Oscar Wilde's uh, grave was to uh, kiss it with lipstick. So they have like lipstick imprints all over it, which was, you know, rotting the the uh, cement and all, the whole thing. But uh, I think all those are now blocked off, cordoned off. I think uh, I haven't seen it in person, but I, I heard Oscar Wilde's grave has like plexiglass in, in front of it. But the thing about Père Lachaise, by the way, is forget all the famous people there. You should just go there because it is really just an awesome place to visit because so many of the tombstones and and uh what what are the uh, mausoleums? Right, that would be the word. The incredible uh, art, right? You know, just sculpture, amazing gravestones for people you've never heard of. I mean, they might be minor history, uh, French history sort of characters, but just amazing art there, and right. it's a really cool place. And just to get lost there, but I probably have visited there when I lived there maybe a dozen times at very you know for various uh, durations. Sometimes it was just like ten minutes. But one time I went there, I went to go see a friend of mine who lived nearby in the 20th there, and I was a little early, so I kind of cruised through there. And I wasn't particularly going to look at Morrison's grave, but I was kind of nearby. Um, I think, I'm trying to remember, I think Chopin's grave is not that far from Morrison's. I'm trying to remember. But anyway, I was in the general vicinity of Morrison's right. grave, not intending to go there, and I heard a lot of noise. And this kind of chaos. And I was like, okay, whatever. There's there's a bunch of knuckleheads, you know, doing whatever at his uh, grave site. And I happened to go over there, kind of walk by, and I saw there was like four or five kind of college-age girls just making a lot of noise and a lot of commotion over there by his grave. And again, remember at the time, it was just like a, a visual nightmare of just graffiti and garbage. And it was just really kind of crazy. And I... I went, I kind of walked over there and I was kind of 
trying to see what was going on. I was getting a little closer and these girls were like, hey, come over. Hey, are you here to see Jim Morrison's grave? And I was like, all right, I'll go check this out. And I went over there and like I said, there's like four or five college age girls. Um, and they were, it turned out that they were uh, a Dutch. I think one of the one of the group was in university there in Paris or had just graduated, something like that. And the rest were her friends who had, were visiting from Holland. I remember they were from near Rotterdam, uh, some town near Rotterdam. So anyway, they were there. They were talking about the, the Doors and Jim Morrison and what big fans they were. They were smoking a joint, which um, was was funny. I did not partake, not because I wasn't interested in that, mind you, just that European smoking joints is not what, what Americans are used to. It's usually tobacco with hash in it, which was not my thing. So... Uh, by the way, I don't know if that's still the case, but if you're an American and you go over there, be, be wary of that. But uh, <laughs> if, if that bothers you, but they were there, they were talking about Morrison. They were asking if I was a big fan of the Doors. I was like, no, not really. And I was asking them, are they Doors fans? They, of course, being Dutch, spoke perfect English, you know, and it wasn't a communication challenge right. or anything, but I was asking them, I'm like, are you big Doors fans? What's your favorite album and all that? And the net net of it was they were really into Morrison. They, they're just talking about like, oh, he's so handsome. Right. He, you know, he's such an amazing guy. You know, we love him so much. And when I was asking them about the Doors music that they actually like, they couldn't even really name any songs they liked other than, you know, Light My Fire or, I don't know, Writers on the Storm or whatever. Yeah. Dude, I think they were just there to celebrate his lizard. <laughs> Could be. Could be. <laughs> we'll talk more about the, the lizard. lizard. Yeah, that's that's really crazy. That's really crazy. You know that uh, he's just the symbol, but the music doesn't matter. They couldn't that's, really that's even really name an album that they liked, and they were just kind of saying that this going on and on about Morrison and how awesome he was, and this was you know, really about 25 years after his death, right? So it was sort of interesting. They did. They, they clearly weren't even alive probably when he died. They had come to his legacy or legend or whatever it is sort of independently, maybe through their parents or something like that. But I was just sitting there, I left shaking my head just going like, why are they so into this guy? They don't even like his music. Is he really that compelling as a as a figure or what have you? And I, I still think about that. It's like, wow, there's a lot of people who are really into the doors, but they're not really into the doors. They're kind of into Morrison more. And why is that? And what does that mean as far as the topic we have uh, today? So I will pass it over to you, Slip, to talk about how you came to understand and know about the doors. Yeah, okay. So my story is very different. Um, and my opinion of the Doors is very different. Uh, I heard them really early. Uh, I had a, my best friend lived across the street from me when I was, uh, I don't know, in elementary school, like in second, third grade. Um, actually, this was later when I moved and I came back to visit my friend. We were friends for a few more years after that. But this was probably, I don't know, uh, fourth, fifth, sixth grade, um, Dale Griffo's mom, that was the, the friend's name, he, she had this uh, copy of 13, which was a compilation The Doors reached, uh, released in the, I think in late 1970. And, 
you know, I saw this. And of course, the cover, like the first album, has this giant photo of Jim Morrison. And the other <laughs> doors are kind of smaller, yeah. which uh, yeah. is appropriate in a way from what you were saying. Um, but yeah, I was kind of fascinated by that. And I was I loved the music. And um, then a few years later, you know, in the early 80s, there was this whole we'll talk more about this probably, but there was this whole kind of revival of the doors that was really triggered by Francis Ford Coppola prominently featuring the end in Apocalypse Now. It's a great effect. In, in 1979. Yeah, it's a great effect. Absolute yeah. masterpiece. Right. It's a great effect. It's an incredibly powerful use of music, one of the probably the most memorable. And then around that time, the uh the book by uh Jerry Hopkins and Danny Sugarman, No One Here Gets Out Alive came out. And the Electra, in response to the this, the new attention. Uh, the new radio play that FM was giving to the Doors, because really no one really kind of thought about the Doors, I think, throughout the 70s so much. But they started playing them a lot on classic rock radio, and Elektra released the Doors' greatest hits, and it immediately went double platinum. So they they would release more archival stuff in the 80s. A Live She Cried came out in 83. That was a single-disc uh, live album. Uh, and they even released their version of Gloria as a single. So there was this whole revival of Jim Morrison in the early 80s. And at the time, I started getting into The Doors again, even you know after hearing 13, I didn't really follow up on that, but that was my first exposure. But I didn't really even realize at the time that that was happening. I just was like, you know, I'd heard them on the radio again. I got a copy of No One Here Gets Out Alive. This was by the, this time I was in junior high. And I carried this book around with me like a Bible. I just became obsessed with the doors and started getting their records. And I remember around this time, too, my dad listened to this oldie station called K-Earth 101, a Los Angeles area uh, station. I remember right? that. Remember K-Earth. K-Earth 101. Exactly. And they would have this every year. They would have this top 500 songs over, I think it was either over Memorial Day weekend or New Year's weekend. I don't even remember. I think it was New Year's, yeah. actually. And they would do yeah. the top 500 songs every year, Stairway to Heaven. Right, would always be number one, even though Stairway to Heaven is not something K-Earth would ever play. You know, they mostly played yeah. a lot of 50s and early 60s and, you know, some of the you know, Carpenters type, type stuff. A little bit yeah. of that, but they mostly played even earlier rock and roll. You know, a lot of the stuff my dad listened to, like doo-wop, and then they play some into the 70s, but not much. You know, mostly it was up to the late 60s. They played Hendrix, too, and stuff like that, but they didn't really play anything in the 70s too much. Um but that one year, 1981, was the first time Light My Fire was the number one song of the year for the greatest 500 songs. And I think it was part of this revival that had happened. Uh, around this time, too, I started. So the doors were one of the things that really got me into getting more into music. Uh, you know, it kind of happened the same time as me first hearing Dark Side of the Moon which is probably the album more than any other that really got me into caring and wanting to know more about music. Cause I was a music listener, you know, as a kid, but I never really read about music until this time. And I started reading a lot of criticism. I got the Rolling Stone record guide, which was originally released in 1977. It was a red cover book. And in there, the Doors albums got rave reviews, but it was funny because in 1982, a year or two later, they released a new edition, which had a lot of punk bands and stuff. And in this edition, they just were savaging the doors. So I was kind <laughs> of like, wow, you know, this was such a diametrically opposed uh, opinion. That sounds like Rolling Stone, though. They kind of just like, well, oh, yeah, like, was cool. But now they'll talk about Black Sabbath and Led Zeppelin and how important they were. But at the time, they savaged those bands. 
You know, it's yeah. it's just critics changing with the with the with the times. And this, I think, the same is, with Rush. Yeah, Rush. Exactly. They were savaged at the time, and now they're looked upon as as great as they were. You know, they're given the right credit. I think at the time too. Um, you know, it was kind of a reaction against the new popularity of the Doors, and kind of looking back and saying, "Was that that great?" I'll talk about the Doors' effect on rock criticism at the time when I go more into uh, my evaluation. But you know, all this was happening, and then, uh, you know, I've, I got into poetry. I was always kind of interested in writing, and you know, hearing Jim Morrison's kind of goofy poetry kind of inspired some of my own goofy poetry. And I started reading the beats. You know, I read Dharma Bums, uh, On the Road. Um, you know, I, I started getting into, into that. And I think the doors were one of the things that just really got me into wanting to find out more about the music that I liked. And one of my best friends, Joe, he was really into them too. And we would kind of laugh at some stuff, you know, the overwrought poetry and stuff, but we loved it. You know, we just loved the band. And it's funny, there's a lyric from When the Music's Over that talks about the scream of the butterfly, which what the hell does that fucking mean, you know? But it sounds kind of cool. And my friend Joe wrote this in one of his essays. Um, me and Joe would kind of compete in English for who was the smartest. I was really good in the humanities. He was too. Of course, he was. He became a physicist later. He was generally just way smarter than I was. He eventually became a group to be a physicist. And he was way better at science and math. And we couldn't compete but in english we would we were pretty much neck and neck and he wrote this one essay that my uh sophomore english teacher read for the class because it was so good and i got a couple essays read too you know over the years but um she taught you know he mentioned the scream of the butterfly as kind of a metaphor for something and i was just wanting to raise my hand and say you know he totally stole that line from jim morrison uh, later, recently <laughs> listening to you know an audiobook about Jim Morrison, I, I learned that that scream of the butterfly was just thrown into when the music's over as part of the lyrics. It was actually the title of an X-rated film, so nice. it was just kind of hodgepodge thrown in because it sounded cool, you know. And obviously, you know, you mentioned Mike Kelly, Mike K. Uh, when we went to college, uh, he was a fan of the Doors, you know, and I remember talking about them with him. And then, of course, you and I went to see Oliver Stone's movie when it came out, right? Yeah. And that brought a whole new revival with the incredible uh, performance of Al Kilmer. I kind of feel the same way about that movie as I do The Doors. I think there's goofiness in that movie. There's a lot of bad, but there's a lot of good. Um, of course, the worst part of that movie was Meg Ryan. That was just the worst casting ever. It kind of portrayed her as, you know, kind of a, too nice, this Meg Ryan just doesn't fit Pam Corson because Pam Corson was like a female Jim Morrison. She was insane. She was crazy yeah. like he was. So it was, it was always kind of goofy. And then, of course, I haven't been listening to The Doors that much lately. Obviously, over the last couple of weeks, I have in preparation for this. But I hadn't listened to them for a while because my wife absolutely hates The Doors. She doesn't just think they're mediocre. She thinks they're one of the worst bands ever. She just never got into Jim Morrison and that whole thing. I keep waiting for her to to kind of realize that a lot of what she likes, uh, you know, Nico and Kate Bush probably wouldn't exist without this band. Uh, but you know, it's not enough. She, <laughs> she freaking hates them. Uh, but yeah, I've really enjoyed listening to them again, uh, for this. And I do, uh, I am going to kind of defend some of their excesses. I think they're there for a reason. Uh, but that's it for me. So, you know, that's pretty much my history with the band. And 
No, that makes sense. And I do remember seeing the movie and just, I, I still was just like, I, there's good things about the movie. The movie was entertaining, but, but I was, didn't leave that movie going, well, maybe I need to reevaluate the doors right. uh, that much. Um, so the, the album, the background, the history, why don't you tell us a little bit about how they came to be as a band, how they recorded their first album, where that came from? Sure. Just a little bit about Jim's childhood. So he was raised in a, a military family. His dad was like the, one of the uh, youngest. I think he was at the time the youngest admiral in the Navy. And he com commanded like uh, aircraft carriers and stuff. He was kind of a big deal. So the family moved around a lot. And he was Jim was like a class clown. You know, he was like kind of crazy as a youngster, you know, even and that would kind of prefigure some of his behavior later. Um, he grew up around and then he went to college in Florida and then later uh, went to UCLA Film School. That is where he met Ray Manzarek, who was also in their class. And Francis Ford Coppola was another student at the time. And Jim was already getting a reputation as kind of eccentric. He made films that were not well received. He was not technically very good as a filmmaker, but he was just this character who was people people were impacted by. He had a charisma to him. You know, he's yeah. obviously very handsome. Uh he was overweight at the time. So uh but even then he, you know, had this charisma with people. Uh he after school he moved to Venice to become a kind of what he really wanted to be, which was a poet. And he would just sleep on this rooftop and kind of peep at girls in the window and stuff. He had this really strange <laughs> existence. He lost like 50 pounds because he just would, his only diet was stealing tangerines and avocados off of neighbor's trees. You know, he lived this- While he was, uh, while he's peeping in windows. While he was peeping in windows. Uh, and he yeah. lived this really bohemian existence. And one day he was on the beach, just like in the movie, uh, he meets Rayman Zarek, and Rayman Zarek was currently, uh, you know, he was a much better filmmaker, and he was living with his girlfriend at the time uh, in Venice as well. And he was playing with this uh, kind of surf band called Rick and the Ravens that was with his brother and some other musicians. But they weren't really going anywhere. They weren't, He, you know, he really wanted to make it as a musician. He was a pretty talented keyboardist. And he wanted to go further. And he just saw Jim, you know, come out of the water. You know, this Adonis, he had lost all this weight and his full handsomeness and charisma was evident. And he was talking with him and Jim was mentioning he was doing poetry. and Like Bo, like Bo Derek. Uh, and, exactly, and except like the that. male version, right? <laughs> so he, you know, he sang him some of, uh, some of his lyrics. Moon, Moonlight Drive was the song, which was later re uh, recorded and released on their second album, Strange Days. And that's... That's how they got started. They eventually, um, uh, Ray, uh, Ray was uh, into transcendental meditation at the time, which was really big. And the Maharishi actually lived in LA at the time. This was pre-Beatles. So this is like 65. Because that's where all the girls were, right? Yeah, probably. Into. And uh, two other students in his class were in a band called the Psychedelic Rangers, the drummer John Densmore and guitarist Robbie Krieger. So first he had Densmore joined the band and then Krieger, and then they eventually got together with Morrison. They decided to call themselves The Doors, which was named after Aldous Huxley's Doors of Perception. Uh, and that's kind of what started them off. And at first, uh, Jim was really shy and he couldn't really sing the way he eventually would be able to. Um, he had this kind of higher pitched voice, but eventually he would kind of 
uh, use his influences, which were mainly Elvis Presley and Frank Sinatra, and more about that in, in a little a little later, um, to kind of develop his baritone. And um, they, uh, you know, just started practicing. And the L.A. music scene was just getting going at this time. So the birds were massive. Um, you know, they had a number one song with a cover of Bob Dylan's Tang uh, uh, Tambourine Man. And then there was also these great bands like Buffalo Springfield was around this time. And then Love, who was a huge influence on the Doors. Um, and I'll talk more about that uh, well, I could talk about that now. This is the history part. I was going to talk more about that. But, you know, Arthur Lee was one of the main reasons they were signed to Electra because Love was on Electra. They were very critically acclaimed. Everyone was really thinking they were going to be the next big thing. Uh, but the Doors started playing around this uh, L.A. and they first played a residency at this dive bar called the London Fog. Um, and they started to get a little bit of notice there, but it was when they really... Uh, started getting noticed was when they started doing uh, shows at the Whiskey A Go-Go, which was like this new hip club. I mean, all of the Hollywood, uh, you know, uh, elite were attending this club um, and seeing stuff like Frank Zappa, who was around at the time as well, um, and Love and Buffalo Springfield, like people like Warren Beatty and Julie Christie, et cetera. Um, so the Doors started playing there and they started to gain a following, um, one big influence on Jim Morrison, too, was Van Morrison, who was another wild man, you know, another alcoholic <laughs> who yeah. uh, was playing the whiskey with his band Them. And he would do this crazy stage show of just thrashing around and slamming the mic against the, the, the ground. And Jim Morrison definitely picked up influences, you know, that influence from him. And they were even drinking buddies for a while. Frank Zappa loved them as well. Uh you know, and uh, they were making a real impact. Of course, one of the most infamous things that happened at the Whiskey was they, when they they had played the song The End for a while, but it didn't have the Oedipal section in there. Uh, one night, uh, Jim didn't show up for their show. And uh, I think you played the earlier clip of Ray Manzarek singing uh, Love Me Two Times, and that's that's uh, related to that, right? Uh, Jim was not very reliable. He was uh, taking tons of acid and drinking heavily. One night he took what he said was 10,000 micrograms of LSD, which even for the acid uh, of the 60s, which was strong, much stronger than the acid that would come later, was very pure. Um, that was a heroic dose. I mean, that's insane. It's probably exaggerated, but let's just say he took a lot of acid and didn't show up and they found him just naked wearing these cowboy boots in the hotel and they eventually cleaned him up and yeah. got him back for the second show. And he was just yelling. He was just saying, you know, F the mother, kill the father, F the mother, kill the father. Just over was and over he again. Still naked yeah. and wearing cowboy boots or they put clothes they on, put him, clothes on him. Right. Okay. So yeah. then they got him to the show and he did this version of the end where he, you know, did the whole killer woke before dawn with the whole Oedipal sequence that we heard at the beginning of the show. And, you know, there's in the movie makes it like they were kicked out of the whiskey. None of that's really true, but it did make a real impact on people. And, you know, no one had done anything like this ever in rock and roll. I mean, there were outrageous people like, you know, Little Richard and things who was really crazy. But I don't think anybody had done anything of this nature previously. So they started to get noticed. And they And as I mentioned, Arthur Lee 
uh, told Jack Holtzman, who was the head of Electro Records, he's all, you have to come see The Doors. They are the greatest. You know, you need to get them on your record label. So Jack Holtzman came to a show, and of course, The Doors, Jim Morrison sabotaged the, the band <laughs> by acting crazy and putting on a really terrible show. But then Arthur Lee said, stay for the second show. So they stay, stayed for the second show, and of course, they delivered. They did an incredible show. So he eventually brought Paul Rothschild, who was this really hip producer um, for Electra. He was kind of one of the hottest producers, and he loved them too. So they got signed to Electra, and that's when they uh, started recording. Uh, around this time, too, uh, you know, Andy Warhol was uh, doing his whole exploding plastic inevitable show in New York, which featured the Velvet Underground. And he came, brought that to LA into the whiskey, and the doors uh, actually opened up for that. And the Velvet Underground, I think, were both influenced by the doors and influenced them. And of course, they brought along their singer Nico, who Jim got together with and was dating at the time. Uh, and I think he was a huge influence on her music as well. So then the doors get signed, they, they record their album, they release Break On Through to the other side. Uh, the, which is the opener of the album as the first single, it does absolutely nothing. doesn't even break the top 100. But then, of course, as we've talked about before, with Smells Like Teen Spirit and even Billy Joel's Captain Jack, a radio DJ got a hold of A Light My Fire, and they just started playing it. And uh, it was one of those songs. People, whenever the uh, DJs would play it, people would request it like crazy. But, of course, this was only played on FM radio because the song is seven minutes long. So the DJ begged the Doors to cut it down to a shorter version uh, so that it could be played on AM radio. And they did this. They made like a three-minute version, was released on AM radio, and it just kept climbing the charts until it eventually became the song of the Summer of Love. It became a massive hit. So the Doors went from kind of touring around playing these tiny clubs to all of a sudden playing huger and huger venues. Really, they were one of the first arena rock bands. Obviously, the Beatles had played Shea Stadium, but the Beatles hadn't had stopped touring after 1966. So really, the Doors were kind of one of the biggest things around. The Stones actually had stopped touring for a number of years as well. They wouldn't tour again until 1969. More on that later. But the Doors were kind of the biggest band in America for those for 1967 and 1968 as a touring band. They were selling out huge, huge venues and kind of were one of the founders of what we would later come to know as arena rock, you know, and then they released their other album, strange days, which I think might be their best album overall um, between that and the debut and maybe Morrison hotel and LA woman are the ones I think that really stand out. It didn't do as well as the first album. Uh, it still sold quite a bit. And then waiting for the sun was their blockbuster. This album was a uh, number one album. Uh, originally, they wanted to call the album "Celebration for the Lizard," and it would be an ex it would include a sidelong track of the same name that was cobbled together from different poems Jim had written and different musical segments the Doors had written. Um, it was an extension of songs like uh, "The End" and "When the Music's Over." It was kind of the ultimate, going to be the ultimate expression of you know the whole Doors poetry and art kind of thing. 
but they couldn't nail it in the studio. I mean, they were solid musicians, but they were not like a prog rock level, you know, band. And this is essentially yeah, a they piece weren't of, yes. Right? Yeah, they yeah. weren't yes. They this long kind of composition with all these changes, they just couldn't nail it down. They would do a couple live versions of this throughout the years, and one is captured on uh, their album Absolutely Live. Um, I think it's pretty impressive what they actually did, but it, just the studio, you can listen to the studio version on uh, their rarities uh, set and it's, it sounds like shit. You know, they just couldn't nail the transitions. So they ended up just printing the poetry on an inner sleeve and only putting uh, the segment called not to touch the earth on the album. But the album was number one, mainly off of the strength of their second number one single, hello, I love you, uh, which was a complete rip off of all day and all the night by the kinks, but it's, you know, it's a it's a great kind of poppy bubblegum song. I think I'll talk more about that, too, because it's interesting how the doors were at once experimental, but completely commercial. Um, and this was one of the examples of that. Uh, the album is and pretty almost uh, literally commercial with that Buick ad, right? Yeah, exactly. Um, <laughs> we'll talk. Yeah, we could talk more about that. The the um, and, you know. Waiting for the Sun's a pretty spotty album, but it was very successful. They followed that up with a what is their undoubtedly their worst album, The Soft Parade. Um, Paul Rothschild got it into its head that you know, following on the heels of uh, albums like Sgt. Pepper, The Doors needed to add horns and have this whole elaborate uh, section. Just as the kind of the rock world was going back to basics and getting you know out of that kind of thing in '68. Um, the album does have a great extended track called, um, which is the title cut, The Soft Parade, which I think is one of their better songs. And it's got Touch Me, which I think is a great single. Um, but it's a it's a crappy album. And by this time, you know, Jim Morrison was so out of it that they were really starting to fade and they were having all of these terrible uh you know, shows. Just more and more of the shows were worse because he was just acting up. Uh Shortly after this, you know, he was arrested in Miami for indecent exposure. Uh, it seems to be the consensus nowadays that he didn't really do anything. Uh, to sh- he didn't really show off the lizard. Uh, but um, <laughs> he, uh, he did come close and he was acting crazy. Uh, this was kind of the downfall of the band in a lot of ways. It prevented them from touring as much as they could because he was kind of having to go deal with depositions in the case and uh, in Miami. Uh, they then uh, kind of got back to basics with Morrison Hotel, which is more of a blues album. I think uh, it's definitely one of their stronger records. It has one of their greatest uh, classic songs, Roadhouse Blues. Um, and then, you know, finally they uh, recorded L.A. Woman, which given Jim Morrison's, uh, you know, physical state and mental state is a miracle that it's so good <laughs> because it was it was basically, you know, he was really you know almost dead like the walking dead at this time he was so such an alcoholic and so unreliable um that it's a miracle that they recorded anything at all much less something as great as uh that record uh he left for paris uh he was done with uh, music he said and he wanted to devote his full time to poetry of course, when he got to Paris, he didn't do a whole lot of that. He mostly just kept drinking and drugging like he had always done. Uh, he was getting really sick. He would, uh, you know, he vomited blood a few times, uh, spit up blood. He um, would do, he had 
done risky stuff his whole life. He was always trying to push the envelope uh, with what he could do. And it seemed like he had a death wish. He would do this thing whenever they got to a hotel. He would just get on the balcony and walk on the ledge. Uh, and he, at one time uh, back in Los Angeles, he had actually fallen. Uh, and this was right before um, he had fallen one time a few years back and didn't seem to be that injured. Um, but this time he fell and he had bruised his ribs and, you know, he was, again, coughing up blood. This was like um, a few months before he died. And then, of course, his girlfriend, uh, his wife at the time, Pamela Corson Morrison, uh, actually was a huge heroin addict. And he started dabbling into some of this as, as well. Uh, so when he died, you know, it's really no one knows the cause of death because there was kind of a cover-up. Um, Pamela Corson's other boyfriend, this guy named uh, Jean Dubertoy, was a uh, count. He had he was a French count who was a few years younger than them in his early 20s, and he was a massive heroin dealer. He was actually dating Marianne Faithful at the time and you know, was her main drug dealer. He was also Pamela Corson's main drug dealer. He was there at the time of death because she had called him frantically when Jim was uh, in the bathtub dead. Um, so there's a lot of speculation that Jim had, in fact, overdosed on heroin. Yeah. But I don't think he had would have had very long to live anyway. He It was just incredibly poisoned by alcohol. So it, he was going to die anyway. You could see it in his physical appearance oh, yeah. in pictures. He's all puffy and just, he looked terrible towards the end. When the coroner yeah. came to look at the body and was told he was 27, he didn't believe it. He thought he was yeah. in his 40s. Um, yeah. His hair was already graying. I mean, he had just destroyed himself. So, you know, and shortly after that, a couple of years after that, you know, after trying to wrestle over his estate, uh, because he left everything to Pamela and he had quite a huge estate, you know, just from the doors. Um, you know, and Pamela had to fight against his family and the doors. And, you know, she ended up dying of a heroin or overdose in early 1974. So that's kind of the history. And then, you know, we can talk more about what happened in 1980 during my evaluation with the, with the revival, but that's basically the history of the doors. Yeah. Yeah, so let's talk about evaluations here. I'll, I'll I'll go first. I'll start off by saying, you know, it's probably pretty obvious we've been alluding to it. I'm not the biggest Doors fan in the world. Um, I've never really been, but I, you know, I tried to really look at them anew and and listen to their albums uh, a lot recently, and especially the the first debut album, and. You know, for the most part, I'm still pretty bored by it. The music, there's some interesting things about it. I think the band is a is a good band, but really, ultimately, the the day glow keyboards just kind of grate on my nerves a lot. It's just not a sound that I like. It's not something that that, that type of music, even with other bands, is just not something that I gravitate towards. I don't think any other band really has these keyboards, though. And I think if you don't well, like the keyboards, it's impossible to like the band. Because they're so they're the lead instrument, right? There's really no bass. I mean, there is a we'll talk more about that there is some bass on the doors, but he was basically playing a Fender Rhodes bass for their live performances with his other hand. Uh similar to Billy Joel and Attila, although it, I think it sounds better with the doors. But yeah, with Rayman's Eric, if you don't like Rayman's Eric's playing, that is such a huge part of the sound. 
I do think he's a talented keyboard player for sure. And I think the band, the, the Doors were really a solid band. I mean, they're all pretty good musicians. Yeah. Uh, you know, Ray Manzarek got a lot of run for being a great keyboardist. I think he's a really good one, but he's not like, you know, Rick Wakeman, we were talking about, yes, he's not at that level. Yeah, he's not, um, he's not like a virtuoso like Keith Emerson no. or these prog guys, but he's, I would say he's close. You know, he definitely, uh, and he definitely has his sound, but yeah, as far as the musicianship of the band, he's by far the best. And then I would say Robbie Krieger is also a really interesting guitarist. You know, he had studied. They're, they're all really good. Yeah, he'd studied you know, flamenco, and you can hear some of that, and you can hear a lot of the uh, jazz influence in John Densmore's drumming. Now he's not, he's not a great drummer, but he's solid, and he's got an interesting. I think together they make for a really interesting sound. I would compare them to U two in that sense. U 2s musicians mm. aren't the greatest musicians in the world, but you, when you hear U two playing, you know, you, even if you didn't hear Bono, you would know it was them. You know, they ha they play really well together as a band. I think the Doors are similar that way. Yeah, I agree. I, I think in later Doors albums, they kind of they kind of played down the Dayglow-y, uh, hippie, keyboardy sound a little bit. Not entirely. I think I mean, you're right, their, because the they got the to time. be more blues-based, and that was yeah. de-emphasized to a certain extent. It, it was, and so I like some of the later stuff more this, this, than this album that was really heavy there. There is one band that kind of had that sound that I'll get to in a, in a second when I play some clips here. Um, the, look, I, I think that the Jim Morrison, you can't talk about The Doors without obviously talking about Morrison, We've been as we've been referring to. I think he's simultaneously the best thing about the band and the worst thing about the band. That's really. That's the truest thing ever. That's absolutely true. And the Doors, you, no one would know who the Doors are uh, without Morrison. But I think so much of the things that I just really don't like about the Doors and the attention they got is Morrison just acting like an idiot. Morrison's, I think, overinflated cultural importance in my estimation. And obviously you disagree. Uh, I, I do think, though, that you can't give him enough credit by saying that the Doors and what they are culturally, musically... Because he had a really great voice for that band. What he was doing vocally really meshed with what they were trying to do, whether you think it's the greatest thing in the world or not. He was that band and the voice. And he came, you know, as you were talking about early on, he had, you know, confidence issues with his voice. When they were playing live, he would turn his back to the audience. Right. But I think he came to really just embody everything that they were trying to do. And that in and of itself is impressive. I, I think at their best, you whether you like their music or not, they were a really solid band and they were doing some, you know, very compelling and unique things. Um, I think eventually they came to do more interesting things in this first album. To me, this album has some decent songs on it. It's okay. But I also think there's a heavy dose of like almost cheesy Austin Powers, like uh, Bad Trip Acid Psychedelia on it. Um I, I think this is probably more true with some of the deeper album cuts that I'll get to in a second. Um, but beyond the hits, of, you know, right. like my fire in the end and stuff like that. The thing about the doors to me that made a lot of sense though, was that there was a compelling place, especially kind of, maybe you were saying like the LA scene versus maybe the San Francisco scene or the New York scene there's definitely a place where they were talking about a lot of death and deathy themes and dark 
dark thoughts, as, as Moss would say from IT Crowd. In a time when a lot of the other things going on musically were a lot of peace and love and hippie shit. There were um, dark other dark bands, uh, too. I mean, obviously, the Stones, you know, had had a, had, a, had a darkness, I think. Um, at times, they, but they, they also had the opposite, too. They right? did, but they had stuff like Paint It Black, you know, which yeah, I think is definitely sure pretty is big as the Doors. And I think there's also uh, the band Love, who was, you know, not as well known, but they they had a little bit of that element too. But I agree, I'm not disagreeing with you. I'm just saying there was some of that, but the doors took it to a totally darker level than I think anybody had done. And that was compelling to a lot of people at the time, especially people who were living pretty in pretty dark circumstances. Right. You know, the in Vietnam, you know, the doors. I, I read one thing, I, I saw a little part of a documentary where you know, among the U.S. soldiers in Vietnam, the doors were hugely popular. And for obvious reasons, it's kind of like, you know, uh, if you're watching your buddies die face down in the muck with, uh, you know, Walter Sobchak, yeah. right? Yeah, like that's compelling. You're not going to want to hear about, you know, put a flower in your hair on the way to San Francisco or whatever that shit is. So I get that. And I get how the doors were super compelling in, in that context. And look, I think uh, Oliver Stone, he talked a lot about that, that was what he was one of those guys, right, where the doors really um, had a big impact on him. And for again, I mean, I just another how, thing, you know, just to continue this topic real quick. So so with Frank Zappa, he was very cynical about the hippies, right? Even though he was part of that whole generation, he, you know, we're only in it for the money. The Mothers of Inventions album is a complete parody of, of Sgt. Pepper. And it's very cynically kind of making fun of the hippies. And he loved the doors. And I think the reason he did was because they were exciting and dark in a way that no one, I mean, I think the Velvet Underground were another band that was also really dark, you know, at the time, yeah. but they were not as well known. You know, the doors, it's amazing how popular a band as weird as the doors became. And that's one of the things I think that's so amazing about the 60s was all this stuff was happening where these people were innovative, but at the same time, they were popular. And I think that dark darkness appealed to people who, who like you said, were, were uh, you know, maybe cynical about the whole peace and love thing. Yeah. Yeah. And, and look, there later on, there's a lot of other darker bands that came on the scene some years later, right? We're like uh, Black Sabbath and things like that, but the yeah. heavier bands. But I, but I do think I could see how that was compelling. I, I really do. And I probably would have been more into that than the, you know, go, you know, going to San Francisco kind of stuff. Yeah. But at the same time, you know, I think the, the best part of their music may be captured that some of the worst parts of their music, in my opinion, we're more just kind of a surface level, more minor key versions of what Jefferson Airplane were doing. And I'm definitely not a Jefferson Airplane fan at all. I, I think that you, well, they were contemporaneous, right? I mean, the doors started just at the even before, just at the same time as the airplane. So maybe they fed off of each other. They did know each other. Yeah. In the case of Grace, uh, Grace Slick and Jim Morrison, at one point intimately. <laughs> Because he basically did everybody, but, you know. <laughs> yeah, maybe that was kind of the white rabbit. Yeah. Thing. <laughs> I don't know. I don't know, though. Sometimes people misconstrue dark and brooding with deep and profound. And 
this is where I, I don't necessarily think that the, the dark aspects of their music are necessarily very deep and profound. Um, I would also say Jim Morrison to me, a lot of people have a lot of respect for him. Obviously, Ray Manzarek was going on and on about how he was a reincarnation of Dionysus and stuff like that, which please, <laughs> please. Jim Morrison, I think really for the most part was a big fucking goof. I'm not a fan. I think he was pompous, really self-important, not that deep. I don't like his poetry. I think it's garbage. Um, I, I think he was mostly into taking drugs and, and getting laid, which is nothing wrong with that. That That's fine. But let's not confuse him with the reincarnation of a, of a Greek goddess. <laughs> yeah, it's a little much right, right. Uh, to me, you know, and I think that, you know, he had some interesting things to say. He pushed the limits for sure. He was willing to do that at a time when it was maybe a lot harder to do than today, where routinely people will pee on other people on stage. And that's like a minor news item. Uh, <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> See, the spirit is still alive. The spirit is, mm. is still alive. Yeah. Uh, at any rate, for the most part, I'm just not impressed with his his, his poetry and lyrics. Um, Light My Fire, it's a, it's a catchy song for sure. As you said, it's been covered a billion gazillion times. But again, it's he's doing stuff like, you know, come on, baby, light my fire. Try to set the night on fire. Uh, <laughs> well, in all fairness... <laughs> The majority of the lyrics of that song were written by Robbie Krieger. So okay. the only line that was written by Jim Morrison was uh, uh, the line about the funeral pyre, which, which again, is color. kind of silly, too. But it does give it, you know, it's a pop song for the most part. I mean, it's a pop song with a very experimental kind of jazzy interlude in the middle. But it's like it does kind of give it that dark side, you know, which is interesting. But yeah, rhyming fire with fire. It is a door song. You can, you know, but it's not him per se, right? Okay, so it's a door song, you know, and and like I said, uh, look, if you're rhyming fire with fire, that's like rhyming masses with masses. You know, shout out to Ozzy on that. So, and, and Geezer Butler actually. <laughs> Geezer yeah. Butler wrote that. <laughs> Both. Um, all right, so I'm going to play a clip here of another song off that album that's not one of the major hits, uh, one called Soul Kitchen, so I'm going to play a clip here. Now, to me, that's what I was sort of talking about with the Dayglow kind of keyboard thing. And you were saying there weren't really other any bands that sounded like that. But here's one that kind of sounds a little like that. I want to play a clip for that. You may recognize this band. Oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Too many Definitely. Touche. Touche. That's that sounds just like the doors. That's a great song, so, by the way. But it's uh <laughs> yeah. but it's uh it's uh yeah. You could hear hear that was kind of a sound at the time then, because that really it, does sound a lot like it. It does. And and again, that obviously is question mark and the Mysterians with uh 96 tears, which by the way, 
Uh, I agree. I like that song actually uh, quite a bit, but they originally wanted to name it 69 Tears and the record company would not let them do that. <laughs> That's hilarious. So that keyboard sound was definitely around. Ray Manzarek was a little bit better than that and a little more interesting than that, but that sound is there. Not a fan of that that kind of organy keyboard sound just in general. This is not my thing, but that did exist. Um, another song off the album that kind of had really just silly lyrics the uh, crystal is the crystal ship. The crystal ship is being filled. A thousand girls, a thousand thrills, a million ways to spend. Yeah, so look, that if you look listen to that song independently. Obviously, it's in the context of the album and some of the other things. It's like, was that really deep or great to me? No, not really. Um, By the, the way, uh, I love how you're choosing like my a few of my favorite songs from the album in the yeah. case against the doors. <laughs> <laughs> I love both of these songs. I'll talk more about them. All uh, right. But, Fair yeah, enough. That's hilarious. Um, you know, I other songs on the album. Uh, you know, the Alabama song, it's a cover, obviously, um, from a song, I think it was, maybe you know this, from the 30s, Yeah, 20s, it was Bertolt Breck from Three Penny Opera, yeah. Yeah, yeah. and it was, a, the original lyric was about, show me the way to the next little boy. Um, Morrison, obviously, was not going to be that provocative and talk and keep that lyric. Well, so you're dealing to, with a time where they couldn't say higher on Ed Sullivan, right? True, Girl, true. we couldn't but, get much uh, higher, you know, and they got... They were supposed to do six Ed Sullivan shows, and they they basically only let them do one. They said they would never be on the show again just for doing that. Um, so it's that's how, you know, that's the climate you're dealing with. So I think Morrison wouldn't have had a problem with that um, himself. I think it's probably the record company would. If they're not going to allow 69 Tears, they're not going to uh, allow a guy Fair to sing enough. about little boys. Fair enough. Plus, Fair that enough. song is such a weird thing to do i mean this weird baritone breck song it kind of goes toward more of the uh darkness and the you know how they were doing some innovative stuff at the time in my mind yeah look i actually think it's amusing i think the fact that they did that song is amusing i actually think one of the more interesting songs on the album um All right, so that's another uh, cover, right? And to me, that's kind of pretty, it's, it's cheesy. It's cheesy. You could almost see uh, Cookie Jar doing this in his act uh, a little bit. And you could say, okay, Jim was being amusing. He was trying to be a little bit of a, of a comic with this. That's fine. But it's just not very compelling to me as the larger narrative about this serious, dark, brooding, bluesy kind of band. But maybe that's part of their thing. It's, the, kind it's of the weird, both. like I said, you know, they have Hello, I Love You. This is like a almost a bubblegum song, you know? And, and yeah. I think 20th Century Fox goes along with that. It's the weird dichotomy between, you know, the dark experimental band that's doing Alabama song in the end, and then the band that's doing Touch Me, you know, which is sounds like it could be a lounge singer too, right? It sounds like Frank yeah. Sinatra. So it's a weird hybrid thing where they're yeah. both a pop band and an art band. Yeah. Like uh, maybe a psychedelic lounge lizard king, huh? huh? Yeah. All right, sorry. <laughs> 
how to do that. All right, you have another song though. You talk about being influenced. I I, I want to play time two bands here. The Doors first with this. Time to lie. Time to laugh. Time to die. And I want to compare that to this. Awesome. Huh. You mentioned the birds earlier and then being an influence. That's a little more than an influence, don't you think? <laughs> yeah, I suppose. I suppose. Of course, uh, that's the whole, uh, what is it, Song of Solomon or whatever the hell that is from the Bible. It's like yeah. a Bible verse. And he, you know, he did take that one line. I, I don't know about the rest of it, uh, but that's that's true. Um. So, look, I, there's other door songs off that album that I'm sure you'll play and talk about. I'll leave those to you. But for the most part, the lyrics on this album are not impressive to me at all. Like, I think they're kind of a 10th grader who's smoking dope with his friends in the parking lot, scribbling shit on his, you know, notebook, peachy fold or whatever. That's fine. But it, it's hard for me to reconcile like, oh, wow, he's a shaman. Dionysus, reincarnation, all this stuff. I just kind of roll my eyes. Um, I do like the end. I think it's interesting. The Oedipal thing is whatever. I know they're just, you know, Jim was just trying to be provocative and that's fine. I love that song and I mostly love it, I think, because of Apocalypse Now and 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 again, how they used it in that movie. I can't separate that in my mind, right. but I do like the song. Well, there's and a reason he like used most, it, right? Yeah, yeah, I mean, it's it, great. Has a, it I, has a power to it. And uh, obviously it you see those images of the, you know, napalmed trees, palm trees and stuff. It's pretty powerful. Uh, it is. But I think, yeah. It It is. And I also think that that song is a definite precursor to what I, my favorite door song, which is Riders on the Storm, um, which I, I do think is a, a great song. And it is, it's similar in a lot of ways, different in some, but I do like the end. I ultimately think a lot of, uh, you know, Jim Morrison is a compelling figure. He's a compelling figure. Um, for his insanity, there, there's an attraction to that. There's an attraction to the mental illness, I think, that he had a little bit, weirdly. Um, some of the mania. Uh, obviously, you know, handsome, rock star type of kind of guy. A lot of girls liked him and are attracted to that whole thing. Um, like I mentioned with the the Dutch girls in, the, in Père Lachaise. Um, I think a lot of boys liked the doors because a lot of girls like the doors too weirdly and sometimes in rock is the other way around um ultimately though i think the my biggest issue with the doors is not that they weren't a decent band or didn't do good things i, I think they did i'm not the biggest fan as i said but i do think that their reputation way exceeds their actual contributions i mean that's really where i come down to it and I think it's, you know, it's Morrison. If you're a big fan of Jim Morrison for whatever reason, and you think that he was super compelling, then your evaluation maybe of the music will be higher because he's such an, you know, integral uh, part of that. Um, ultimately here, though, I'm going to go short. It's hard to short the, on valuation because of Morrison and because generations of people who never really even experienced him, you know, contempor contemporaneously, right? still feel him uh, as a compelling force in their lives, like like those Dutch, you know, college girls, right? They didn't know who he was, basically, musically, but they were still compelled by him. So it's hard to short them because of that. But 
I kind of do think over time that those things wane a little bit and they'll settle in more where their music contributions are, which are solid, but not at the level that, you know, they're made out to be, in my opinion. So I will uh, pass it over to you for your evaluation. Great. Yeah. So obviously I'm going to disagree. Let's play uh, no, that first clip real quick. Keep. Okay, of course, that is the great Mosquito from The Doors' final album. Well, final, I guess if you count an American Prayer, that would be their final album. But uh, uh, the album Full Circle. And believe it or not, that's not even the worst that, uh, you know, as bad as that album gets. Um, but that's why The Doors needed Jim Morrison. If you listen to uh, The Doors' final two albums, uh, they are completely awful. Um, absolutely terrible. I actually like the Mosquito song. <laughs> I think that might be John Densmore's contribution. Um, so, yeah, as far as what you said about Jim Morrison and the legacy, it's kind of undeniable. You can't really argue it. You know, I've been trying to wrap my head around exactly why it is that the doors keep kind of uh, staying with us and why they keep having an impact. I mean, if you go on YouTube, you can find tons of videos of Jim Morrison, just interviews and uh, the doors and, and, you know, even younger people are still reacting to this stuff. And I think it's kind of mysterious, actually. I think it's a combination of things and I'm going to get a little pretentious uh, with the whole Dionysus shaman thing a little bit in my evaluation. But I think there is something to it, it even though, yeah, it's ridiculous on one level. Um, but of course, uh, you know, let's start with the Doors' biggest, most famous song, Light My Fire. This song is one of the most covered songs of all time. I actually found a website. I think it's called like Second Something. Uh, but it lists all the covers around the world of the doors. And of course, we played a, a goofy kind of, uh, you know, uh, Ray Block singers or whatever at the start of the show, just to give you an idea. Um, and of course, uh, just a year later, Jose Feliciano had had nearly as big of a hit with it as the doors. In fact, a lot of people thought he actually wrote the song, but it was written by Robbie Krieger. And it is, like I said, one his of, first song. It right? was his first ever... first song, really. Yeah. Um, and uh, you know, it was just really unlike anything. Even though you know some of the keyboard sound might have been very question mark in the Mysterians. Uh, you know, there's that whole in, uh, you know, jazzy interlude in the middle, and there's that whole intro, uh, the kind of almost Bach inspired classical intro, the keyboard. Um, when the song starts, it, it, there's a drum tap that actually is on the four rather than the one it's got a lot of interesting things i mean when robbie krieger talks about it he basically said i threw in every guitar chord i could um to this song you know that it would be untrue you know that i would be a liar if i was to say to you girl we couldn't get much higher yeah so i mean it's it's a really interesting song and um What's funny is that song was just ubiquitous uh, to where even people like Frank Sinatra were listening to it. And Frank Sinatra actually hated it, but he didn't hate it because he didn't think it was good. 
he hated it because he thought Jim Morrison was just ripping him off, you know, with yeah. this kind of croon. And there definitely is that element there of Frank Sinatra, which is kind of an interesting thing, you know, in the context of that music. I don't think there was any anybody who really sounded like him at the time. There's tons of people who sound like him now, but that is because of the influence. So I think vocally, uh, you know, he was just really unique. And I just think the sound of all of them together, even though it had its influences, was just, there's just no one who sounds like them, really. Yeah. Uh, the other thing about The Doors is, you know, they kind of created this mythos uh, about L.A. And I think that's one of the reasons I found them so appealing. And uh, the reason why I find a lot of the lyrics to be appealing, even though I have issues with some of them, is he kind of, it, you really feel like he kind of conjures up that time so much. It almost reminds me of what the Beach Boys did in the early 60s with the whole surf scene in California. They really, you know, you can just picture that scene. And I think with Jim Morrison's lyrics, it's even more of that, but it's the, because it's the darker side as well. Um, and then, of course, there's, you know, Jim Morrison in a way was one of the first real front men. You know, obviously you had, the Beatles didn't really have a front man. They were all, you know, it was really Lennon and McCartney, but they didn't have this kind of crazy frontman vibe, you know. Um, the Stones did. You know, Mick Jagger was kind of the first real rock frontman of a band. Um, but I think Morrison took it farther, and I think he was much more um, of the model for what would come later. You know, your Johnny Rottens and your David Lee Roths and this kind of thing. Yeah. Uh, even maybe Robert Plant as well, uh, who was very influenced by The Doors. He was actually a big fan. And he later, he couldn't afford to see them when before he was in Led Zeppelin when they came to London. Uh, they did this uh, famous show at this place called The Roundhouse, which is supposed to be one of their best shows. And he wanted to see them in 68. He couldn't afford to do it. Um, later, they played, might have been Isle of Wight. I don't think it was Isle of Wight. It was another festival in London and they played together and he was backstage and he was completely disappointed with the show because, you know, by that time, Jim was so far gone. He just had one of his bad nights. You know, and he was a real provocateur. He would he would really provoke the audience, I think, and confront the audience in a way that had never been done. And in a way, he was kind of an influence on punk, punk rock, albeit all direct, uh, indirectly. One show they played in Ann Arbor, uh, he, you know, was in one of his fits and he started, you know, not wanting to do the actual songs. He just started doing this blues improvisation and he would sing in this Betty Boop voice the whole time. And people <laughs> were, were fleeing the show because it was so bad. But one guy stayed right in the front, this guy, Jim Osterberg, who would later change his name to Iggy Pop, who said yeah. he had never seen any rock singer do anything like this and he was completely inspired and he immediately started his own band so that was pretty uh you know an indicator of his of his influence but you can even just his the way he would stand on stage with kind of with his weight on one leg and kind of uh you know tilted back and holding the microphone you can watch uh u2's uh live at red rocks and see bono doing the exact same fucking pose you know i would go uh, eddie vetter as well you know, not that even though that's kind of a dubious influence. Well, I mean, the, the other part, too, is, yes, he did weird things on stage, but he also did nothing on stage besides pass out sometimes. Yeah, that's true. You would never right. know what you were going to get. Right. Um, right. So the, the clip I played at the beginning there of Ray Manzarek, that wasn't because 
Ray wanted to sing Love Me Two Times is because he had to, because Jim Morrison was such a fucking idiot sometimes. He'd just go do too many drugs and pass out on the side of the stage. Right. So, right. you know, I, that's part of the legacy here, too. Right. Yeah, I, I would I would say that's true. You know, you never knew what you were going to get. Um, and part of that, you know, let's talk about this whole shaman crap. You know, um, obviously, you know, if you've seen the Oliver Stone film, there's all these Indians, you know, spurs throughout the film that come as ghosts to Jim. And it's really pretentious and all that. And that was kind of the the myth he tried to uh, perpetuate, you know, the role of the shaman in in various uh cultures throughout the world the medicine man was to you know for him to sort of uh freak out on some kind of drug you know to take some kind of psychedelic and sort of inspire the tribe that way right it was kind of a healing ritual and he saw himself that way he was extremely well read you know obviously everyone talks about his high iq and um you know he was extremely well read i remember there was one story i had read about where when he was in Florida and the, you know, uh, going to school, he, uh, in his room, he just had tons of books, like just overflowing. And he, he challenged his friends to pick up any book and read the first line. And he would tell them what it was, what the book was, which is pretty amazing feat. Um, and he, um, you know, read up on all this kind of, uh, anthropological stuff. And I think he saw himself as, doing the shamanistic thing by taking massive amount of drugs or intoxicating himself with alcohol, you know, he would, he would kind of create this shamanistic, uh, spell on people. And yeah, that's, that's fucking pretentious as hell. And it's true. I do think there's some slight truth to that, but I also think he just became an alcoholic, you know, yeah. <laughs> he just became a drug addict <laughs> and alcoholic uh, while doing that. And that eventually did him in. But um, so in a way, that whole shaman thing is ridiculous, but it also makes sense. And again, no one had done some of the shit on stage that he had done. He was also influenced by obviously by James Brown, who was just an incredible showman. And if you watch like the Tammy show or these old films of James Brown, uh, you know, the uh, Muhammad Ali film, When We Were Kings, has an incredible performance by him. I mean, he's just the greatest performer of all time. And those theatrics influence Jim. A lot. I also think, uh, you know, he's his theatricality and, you know, he essentially brought theatricality to music uh, more than it had ever been done. You know, this whole thing of the re the poetry readings on stage, the the um, antics he would get into was definitely an influence on later artists, uh, especially Alice Cooper, who he was actually friends with, you know, even though they were a really young band. Um at the time and unknown, they would hang out with the doors. And I think, you know, you can hear on the song, uh, there's one album, Love It to Death by the Alice Cooper band that has a song called Black Juju. I don't have a clip of it, but it is pretty much a door song, you know, so there was a huge influence. Not to mention the poetry and rock, uh, Bruce Springsteen, you know, it's obviously also influenced by Van Morrison and, and Bob Dylan, but he was definitely influenced by the doors. He saw them when they came to New Jersey. Um, you know, uh, Patti Smith, obviously was a was hugely influenced by Morrison oh, and not to mention all of kind of gothic dark rock um and doom was influenced by him you know that dark side of music so you know i would argue that those things are part of his myth 
And I think people, you know, react to him in a mysterious way. You know, just his level, the way he looked. You know, when you watch the Ed Sullivan broadcast, really no one looked like him. You know, he just stood out. I mean, he was just rock star, you know, beyond rock star handsome. Like no one had ever seen anybody who looked like this guy. And he just doesn't, he just really, you can't take your eyes off of him. You know, he just has this incredible charisma. I would liken it to Elvis Presley. And I think that's why he has, along with his early mysterious death, you know, the circumstances surrounding it. And just the fact that the doors were, you know, there in the late 60s and gone. It was kind of like with Hendrix, this magic time that was just so short, but so impactful. And I think that's why people respond to him. It's almost mysterious. It's almost magical the way people respond to him, like those girls who didn't even know his music, but they just responded to the the idea and concept. And I think that resonates throughout history. And I think that's important. Um, So let's talk about some of the, the, the poetry thing, because really... He has his moments. Let's just say you mentioned Riders on the Storm. I I agree with you. That's their master, absolute masterpiece. It's a haunting song. You know, he's got incredible lyrics like his brain was squirming like a toad that are just so vivid and so dark. You can you can see them. I also love L.A. Woman. Uh, you know, I love those lyrics. Uh, it it really does conjure up a feeling of Los Angeles. It's evocative, and I think he creates a mood with these lyrics. Now, as a poet, though, he's very limited. I mean, if you read his poems, they're so fucking repetitive. I mean, the phrase is like, you know, when he sings in the end of the ancient lake and ride the snake, there are lakes and snakes in almost every fucking one of his poems. It's ridiculous, right? It's so, he's lazy and repetitive. And, you know, a lot of his poems just don't really add up to a lot, especially when you read them on the page. And you don't hear them, hear him, you know, his rich voice kind of saying them. I think his words are meant to be spoken. I think that's where they have their power, whatever power they may have. But as far as treating him like T.S. Eliot or Wallace Stevens, I mean, that is ridiculous. You know, he's nowhere near. He just didn't put in enough time. I think he might have had potential to be a great poet, but he was just drinking all the time. He wasn't real. It's I don't get the feeling he really worked on his poems that hard. I, I feel like it was almost stream of consciousness. Um, But I do think they're evocative. They create a mood and they create their own kind of world. And, um, you know, you mentioned uh, Crystal Ship. I, I love Crystal Ship. I don't even know what that means. Uh, you know, he I, doesn't either, I think but... Crystal Ship might be a bottle of alcohol. <laughs> yeah. But, um, you know, uh, but yeah, I, I just think it, Crystal Ship's a beautiful song. It's just evocative and it's mysterious. And I like that I don't quite get it. Um, you know, you played a little bit of Soul Kitchen. That's one of my favorite door songs. Um, you know, I'll just say some other lyrics that I think are quite effective. Uh, well, your fingers weave quick minarets, speak in secret alphabets. I light another cigarette, learn to forget, learn to forget. What does that mean? I don't know, but I can picture it, all of it. You know, obviously this is about a soul food restaurant they frequented, but I just love the, you know, the secret alphabets and the, and the learn to forget repetition. I think it's really evocative. You can really kind of picture the scene. I mean, whether it's literary, whether it's deep, I don't really care. It just, it, it contributes to the mood. You if know, it works for you, it works for you. That's yeah, it works for how me. hard it is. And right? I think, um, yeah. you know, one of his less overly poetical songs, but that has some of his best lyrics is Roadhouse Blues, which, you know, kind of became another standard that's been covered a million times. I woke up this morning and got myself a beer. 
the future's uncertain and the end is near. That's genius. I'm sorry, that is fucking brilliant. It's like the best couplet, you know? And it kind of captures him in just a single line. It just captures so much. Uh, so I really, I really like it. But yeah, he's not, you know, great poets like T.S. Eliot. I mean, there's layers and layers of meaning and the poems are just meticulously crafted. None of Jim Morrison's poetry is like that. It's really kind of a lot of non sequitur and stream of consciousness. Stream of consciousness. But I think yeah. some of it, like, you know, the Wasp on L.A. Woman or Riders on the Storm. Uh, the Wasp is also called Texas Radio and the Big Beat. That is a really cool poem. And But I think it's cool because of the weird echoey voice they put on it and because of the music, the pounding music. I think if I just read it on the page, it wouldn't have any impact at all. Uh, it might have some. I mean, there's some cool lines in that one. And then Writers on the Storm, they did this whole thing where, you know, they double-tracked his vocals. So they have him singing it on one track. And then on YouTube, if you look if you look it up, you can actually find the one track of him whispering. So it's like these two voices that create this really haunting thing. And of course, I love I like the lyrics, but I, you know, again, reading them on the page, do they stand out? I'm not so sure, right? Uh, the other thing that Doors did that early on that was really powerful was, um, you know, the, the the impact they had was essentially to help create rock criticism. You know, Bob Dylan and the Birds and you know, the early Beatles stuff had started getting people excited about writing about rock and roll music. Mostly critics wrote about classical and there were not, there was a, you know, growing number of critics writing about jazz. Um, but people started to write about rock. And I think the doors had a real impact because of their jazziness, because they had jazz influence. They'd actually, uh, you know, been written up in downbeat, which was unheard of to write about popular music. And there was another critic, Albert uh, Goldman, who was a jazz critic who changed to being a rock critic because of the doors so they mm. had a huge critical impact at the time and what's interesting is that changed so like i said in between a few years between the red rolling stone record edition and the blue one the doors had gone from being this one of the greatest bands of all time to being a you know a 60s curiosity that was mediocre at best you know kind of more your opinion i think and it's interesting to me that they're so polarizing but at the time, no one thought that. Everybody thought they were amazing. I mean, the Beatles saw them. They, you know, they wanted to get tickets. Every, you know, Bob Dylan liked them. I mean, everybody thought they were amazing. Frank Zappa, who was cynical about everything, loved them. So they had a huge impact at the time. And uh, again, I think it's interesting because when you look back at some of their actual output, and I want you to play that first clip, End of the Night. Um, play that. I'm going to say a word about that. Nothing sounded like that in 1966, 67, uh, except for maybe the Velvet Underground. And I think if, you know, critic Dave Marsh, who's the guy who wrote such the, you know, the bad things about the doors and that Rolling Stone record guy, I think if he had heard, you know, if, he, if he'd heard the Velvet Underground play that, he would have said it was a masterpiece. You know, it's um, it's so stupid uh, the way that critics uh, kind of just change their opinions with the times. Um, but again, I think that song is probably one of the first songs you could call goth 
you know, that was ever done. Kinda, I agree with that. Yeah. Yeah. And it's, it's a non hit, but it's, it's, uh, you know, a great song, a really dark, mysterious song. The other thing I like about Jim is, you know, he sings in that kind of baritone and it's got that, he's got elements of Frank Sinatra, kind of the lounge singer, but he could really rock too. So play a little bit of Backdoor Man. I love this, the way he fucking builds this song up. It's so funny too, because I mean, live he would get so drunk that sometimes he'd just be like, you know, just be like these grunts and groans by the time he got drunk. But I, I love his rock and roll screaming. I think he's one of the better uh, screamers, and I, I really like uh, the way they do that song. Uh, and, you know, and I mentioned before, uh, I already talked about this, but you know, it's so weird how the Doors could be so poppy and so experimental at the same time. You know, you had 20th Century Fox and then you had Alabama song. And as far as the music, uh, you know, like I said, I'm a real fan of the musicians. They weren't, they didn't have the greatest chops in the world as we've discussed, but you know, they were, um, they had their moments, you know, uh, of real inspiration. And I think by far, Ray Manzarek was the best one. So why don't you play a little bit of that, uh, uh, Take It As It Comes. The or Take it easy, baby. Take it as it comes. Don't move too fast. And you want your love to last. Are you the moving as you Yeah, okay, so you can hear there, you know, this kind of crazed whirling organ. Um, and I just love that. I just wanted to say that was, you know, is it virtuosic? I don't know, but it's definitely impactful. And it's definitely, uh, I think, unique. And then, of course, Robbie Krieger had a background in flamenco guitar. And you can, you know, hear that overtly on the song Sp Spanish Caravan that would come out on uh, Waiting for the Sun. Um, but you can hear his interesting kind of intricate, almost sitar-like playing on the end. Um, and then, of course, um, he plays this incredible bottleneck slide, which really comes to light on the second album on Moonlight Drive. But he's just a really unique guitarist, I think kind of underrated. Again, not a, not a Jimi Hendrix-style virtuoso, but just had a very unique sound. And then John Densmore, you know, he might have been the weakest guy in the band technically, but he, he had a really good... Um, a jazzy way of playing. And I also really like the bossa nova beat he uses on uh, break on through. He, he was solid. Yeah. There's nothing wrong with his plan. Definitely solid. And yeah. you know, it's, it's just interesting. I think all of these things come together in a way that's so unique and has stood the test of time, even though it's also dated, you know, like you mentioned, the, the sound is very of its time. You wouldn't mistake any of these songs from being from 1975 or anything. I think that changes on LA woman. I think you listen to uh, riders in the storm. It's almost timeless. It has that more 70s style Fender Rhodes piano. So it's not as much of that organ that makes it sound so kind of sixties garage rock, but, um, yeah, I do think all of these things add up to evoke a certain feeling. And I think for me, I just can't let that go. It's one of these things like the Big Lebowski. When I first saw it, I thought it was kind of a mess. 
you know, and like everybody else, I eventually came to realize it's greatness. And part of the reason it's great is it kind of creates its own little world, you know, and it's yeah. got its own rhythms to it. The way the dialogue is almost, you know, poetry, you know, it's so quotable, right? And it creates this world of LA in the early nineties. And I feel like the doors kind of capture that in the sixties. And I just can't really let it go. Even though I think all of your comments and criticisms are pretty much right. You know, I mean, his poetry is totally overrated. I mean, they, people study his poetry now in classes and stuff, and there's been books written on it. And I think there are elements to be examined there as, as a part of the context of the times and how he brought poetry to rock, I think is really cool. And I almost wish Celebration of the Lizard had happened because I kind of like that adventurousness and over the top. Uh, bold. It's just bold. It was just yeah. daring, you know? But whether it works as art, is yeah it's a mixed bag um and i think your points are very true i i looked at your thing and i'm like geez how am i going to debate this you know he's pretty much right about a lot of it but it's just for me it's not enough to care it just all works for me and i think it obviously has the same effect on others because it's still having that effect now and i think it will continue to so that's why my rating is i'm long on him i'm long on the doors yeah, I mean, ultimately, art is about interpretation, right? right? And your inter how you perceive them makes you feel a certain way. And if that is successful, then it works. You know, I, I get that. I totally get that. And there's we'll get into many bands and movies and stuff like that where I can't defend any of it, but I still like yeah. it. Yeah. Right. And I think that's okay. That That's interesting. That's what makes life interesting. So, all right. So... Thank you, everybody, uh, for listening to our discussion of The Doors' self-titled debut album. Catch us next time on episode five. And thank you for listening, subscribing, all that good stuff. We'll catch you later. All right. All right.